welcome to chapel today. I especially welcome all of the visitors and parents that are here visiting. Um, to begin chapel this morning, let's open by singing number 582 in the blue hymnal. Number 582. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Shuttler. I'm a third year history major, and I have the pleasure this morning of introducing to you our speaker, John D. Roth. John is a Goshen graduate who went on to receive his PhD from the University of Chicago. He teaches in the history department, is director of the Mennonite Historical Library, and editor of the Mennonite Quarterly Review. Many students, such as myself, were welcomed to Goshen College through John's Human Stories Colloquium where we experience John's passion for teaching and commitment to students firsthand. John is the father of two GC students, Sarah and Leah Roth, who will be reading scripture shortly, and another two daughters he has still in high school. Last year during his sabbatical, he completed work on two books, which will be coming out in early December. They are Stories, How Mennonites Came to Be, published by Herald Press, and A Companion to Anabaptism and Spiritualism, 1521 to 1700 by Brill, a Dutch publisher. John's reflection this morning grows out of an experience during his recent sabbatical. Thank you for coming and enjoy. We'll be reading from Genesis 32 verses 22 to 31. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives his two maidservants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. 
So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Good morning. I, uh, I too want to begin with a special word of uh, greeting to our many uh, visitors here this morning. Uh, we're delighted uh, that you're here. We hope that uh, you feel at home on our campus, uh, and we'd love to greet you again next fall as we start up a new school year. So uh, welcome to all of you. The text that uh, we heard read this morning comes from uh, a wonderful a strange uh, soap opera of a story in the Old Testament that may not be uh, familiar to all of you. Uh, the story of Jacob wrestling with a man who is usually identified as an angel unfolds against the backdrop of Jacob's very complicated relationship with his twin brother Esau. Jacob and Esau, of course, are twins. They are uh, intimately connected with each other, flesh of one flesh. And yet even before they were born, uh, they were at war with each other. Their mother, Rebecca, reports that they fought in her womb. And when Esau, who was born first, emerges, Jacob is hanging on to his heel. Esau, we read, is a man's man. Uh, he is a hunter. The text says that he is hairy. He's testosterone-driven, uh, always hungry, the picture of physicality. Jacob, by contrast, is smooth-skinned. He's his mama's favorite, and he's a calculating person, a cerebral type who uh, lives by his wits, who's always scheming. As twins, they are intimately bound to each other, but they are bound as uh, yin is to yang, or as nature is to culture, or the body to the mind. There's the story of Esau who uh, comes back from a hunting trip absolutely famished, and Jacob happens to be cooking supper, and he strikes a deal with his impulsive brother so that Esau trades his birthright, his inheritance as the firstborn son, to Jacob for a pot of lentil stew, just to satisfy his appetite. The hinge on which um, our story turns comes in uh, Genesis 27, when Jacob 
tricks Esau out of a spiritual blessing. While Esau is out hunting, uh, Jacob fools their father Isaac into giving him a blessing that rightfully belonged to Esau, the firstborn. And when Esau discovers this, he is so mad that he's ready to kill Jacob. Jacob flees the scene. He ends up in a distant country where he marries, he becomes rich. But even though he has everything, Jacob is deeply unsettled. He knows that he must be reconciled with Esau, with his other half. And in the passage that was read this morning, we find Jacob returning to try to make his peace with Esau. On the night before this encounter, uh, Jacob is anxious and troubled and haunted. He's still uh, looking for a blessing. And in this odd passage, he spends a night in the wilderness, wrestling with an angel, demanding a blessing, which he finally receives, but only after dislocating his hip. On the next day, Jacob limps toward Esau, that part of himself that he has struggled against for so long. The twins are reconciled, and the suggestion from the text is that for the first time in his life, Jacob becomes a whole person, a person truly blessed. Exactly one year ago, at this hour of the day, I too was in the wilderness, both literally and figuratively. On November the 3rd, 2005, I was miles from any other human being, shivering, uh, nauseated, in considerable physical pain, emotionally depleted, and struggling with forces that I could not name in the hopes of receiving a blessing. Although the memories of that day are still uh, sharply etched in my mind, it has taken me most of a year to step back far enough from the pain of those circumstances to sort out what exactly was going on. But that's what I'd like to try to do this morning. If you'd had asked me a year and a half ago about my basic attitude towards life, I'm sure that I would have responded positively. I'd been happily married for 25 years. Ruth and I had four wonderful children. I was in good health. I, I loved my work at Goshen College. But at the same time, I was keenly aware of uh, feeling frayed around the edges. I realized that I was at the midpoint of my working career. I was 45 years old. I'd been at Goshen for 20 years. I was trying to imagine what the next 20 years might look like. I recognized in myself a growing uh, irritability at all of the clutter in my life, not just the general busyness but little things like the traffic in Goshen or the mail order catalogs that kept showing up unsolicited or especially that stretch of strip malls on Route 33 between Goshen and Elkhart. And most importantly, 
I also knew somewhere that I was uh, spiritually withered. Worship seemed increasingly empty. I hardly ever prayed unless I was obliged to. I sensed that there were people around who were practicing spiritual disciplines, who were intimate with God. But even though I bought the books and thought it would be a good idea to take on a spiritual discipline, I never quite got around to it. I felt like something needed to change. I wanted clarity about the next stage in my life. I wanted a deeper sense of intimacy with God, of purpose and direction and meaning. I wanted to be more spiritual. Although I didn't describe it in these words, I know now that I wanted a blessing. Here I have to add another important point. In my uh, vague understanding, the sort of spirituality that I thought I needed was not something that came naturally. What was natural was our bodies, our desires. Our natural inclinations were always inclined to get out of hand. They were the problems that got in the way of spirituality. What came naturally were things like overeating, and lethargy, and lust, and watching sports for hours on end, or mindlessly playing free cell. <laughs> to be spiritual, on the other hand, required discipline. Truly spiritual people, I thought, were those who were able to rein in their natural impulses, to restrain their physical desires, and to win the battle with their bodily appetites. Spiritual, it seemed to me, was somewhere on the far side of physical. Like Jacob, I was determined to get a blessing, and it somehow seemed clear to me that Esau was the enemy. Now, when I was 12 years old, uh, a National Geographic arrived at our house as you may know, National Geographic's at least then almost always had maps, which I love to spread out and then a dream about the world. And that issue that I vividly recall happened to have a large fanfold map of the Appalachian Trail, a continuous path that runs for 2,174 miles across the eastern part of the United States from Georgia to Maine. And I remember thinking, wouldn't it be amazing to do that, to walk the Appalachian Trail. Like a lot of childhood ideas, I put it out of my mind, but never quite completely. And then last fall, in the midst of my spiritual desert, it suddenly occurred to me that this might be the opportunity to pursue that dream, not the whole trail, but at least a portion of it. And the more I thought, the more excited I became. I had uh, a partial sabbatical last year, uh, my wife was supportive. I was already scheduled to be at a conference in October, which was close to the trailhead in Georgia. And so I began to plan. And the more I planned, the more significant this trip became in my mind. This was to be my vision quest, the chance to discipline the body and to encounter God face to face. I was determined to strip down. This was going to be a minimalist journey, a tent, a sleeping bag, food, not much more. Instead of books, 
I printed out several dozen uh, poems and scripture passages in narrow columns, and then I made a, a Velcro plastic carrier to strap to my wrist so that I could read and memorize and reflect as I walked. I planned a 19-day trip from Springer Mountain, Georgia, along the North Carolina-Tennessee border through the Smoky Mountains to Hot Springs, North Carolina. It was an ambitious plan since I needed to average slightly more than 20 miles a day, but that was all part of the challenge. I won't bore you with a lot of additional details, but as you may have already anticipated, the trip did not turn out the way I had anticipated or had hoped. I left Springer Mountain, Georgia on the morning of October 31, moved at a brisk pace and hiked my 23 miles before settling in at the first campsite. Already the next day, however, I began to encounter problems. In the morning, I slipped in the stream while filling my water bottle. I soaked my, my foot. I changed socks, but the shoe was still wet, which is a big deal if you're hiking. Then not long after that, I misread the map and walked three miles down the mountain before realizing my mistake and had to retrace my steps, which forced me to add six miles to the day's quota. I arrived at my site that evening much later than I had intended, exhausted and almost too tired to eat. I pitched my tent in a clearing on the mountain summit, and all night long I listened to the wind howling and then I began to feel the temperature drop, and I woke to a cold, drizzling rain. I got a late start on day three, and that morning it occurred to me that I actually hadn't seen any of the beautiful vistas that I had imagined. In fact, most of my attention was focused on the very rocky ground in front of me, picking my way along a trail, that followed a rather monotonous pattern of inclines and descents. At noon, I realized I had only traveled seven miles far from my goal, and that I had only seen a handful of people the whole trip, all of them heading south. <laughs> Might have been a clue. Along the way, my appetite had disappeared entirely. I had no interest in food, though I tried to force some down. By the end of the day, my body ached, my feet felt shredded. I had not once worn my plastic poetry sleeve, and the temperature was hovering near freezing. In the morning of November the 3rd, day four, I realized as I put on my socks that huge blisters had formed on the pads of my feet and that several raw sores were emerging between uh, my toes. When I finally got on the trail again, the drizzling rain had turned to sleet and then snow. Uh, a storm uh, spun off from Hurricane Wilma in Florida had upset the weather patterns in the region, and now a thin glaze of ice was forming on the rocks. I began to wonder about the symptoms of hypothermia and then I imagined what it would be like to break a leg uh, alone at the top of the mountain there in the wilderness. By now, I was uh, numb with cold and exhaustion. 
Late in the afternoon, as I crossed a small highway, a pickup truck happened to slow down. A young man asked if I needed a ride. I climbed in, and he drove 10 miles to the closest town, where I checked into a Super 8 motel, just like the one on the strip mall. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the following morning, I hitchhiked to the airport in Knoxville, Tennessee, bought a one-way ticket to South Bend, and came home to lick my wounds and to try to make sense of what had just happened. On the one hand, I suppose it was not such a big deal. The weather was bad luck. I should just swallow my pride and try again another time, this time, though, with more realistic goals. But the truth of the matter is that my sense of confusion and failure went much, much deeper than that. I'd come to the Appalachian Trail for a blessing. And in retrospect, my wrestling on the trail did end in a blessing of sorts, but not without some real pain. I know this morning that I am not alone in my craving for a deeper sense of purpose and meaning. This morning I saw that there are almost 86 million entries for spirituality on Google. It's no accident that the Pentecostals are the fastest growing church in the world, or that there are hundreds of books on the market right now with titles like Spirituality for Dummies, or Spirituality for the Busy Believer, with one-minute spiritual exercises. Yet as those titles suggest, I think I'm also not alone in my deep confusion about the meaning of spirituality or about the place of the body in our desire for a blessing. All of us yearn for beauty, but our bodies get in the way they must be sliced and shaped, nipped and tucked, exercised and dieted and disciplined before they can qualify as beautiful. All of us crave intimacy and communion with those around us, but our bodies seem to get in the way. The physical pleasures of sex often turn out to be fleeting, and the vulnerability that we seek in alcohol or the ecstasy of drugs are momentary and shallow. All of us want to live forever, but we know that our bodies are running down, that the clock is ticking, that even now cancer cells may be lurking unnoticed, waiting for their call to action. Like Jacob, we are estranged from our body, our own self, thinking that it stands between us and a blessing. I confess to you this morning that, uh, like Jacob, I am still on a journey seeking to be reconciled with Esau. Like Jacob, I find myself uh, limping hesitant and uncertain towards some sort of reunion with a part of myself that too often has been my enemy. 
I honestly don't know where or how that journey will end. It's the focus of my writing in the coming year. But I do want to close with some thoughts for your consideration. These are not conclusions uh, so much as signposts or markers along the way that seem important to me, even though they may be perfectly obvious to you. A year after my short stint on the Appalachian Trail, I have a deeper appreciation for the biblical claim that the goodness of creation includes our bodies. When we read in Genesis that humans are made in the image of God, the reference there includes our physical bodies, and it means all bodies, large and small, fat and skinny, healthy and sick, young and old, fully functioning and partially functioning. God did not make a body and then put a soul into it, like a letter into an envelope. Instead, writes Wendell Berry, God formed humans of dust, and then by breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. The dust did not embody a soul. It became a soul. Our bodies are the means by which God is visible in the world. A spirituality without the body is the sound of one hand clapping. It is nothing. This means that your body is precious. It is holy. It is something to be honored and loved and respected and cared for precisely because there is only one you made by God and it is good. This way of thinking has also nudged me to reconsider the place of our natural inclinations and our desires. I'm not naive about the human capacity for sin and deception. There's clearly a place for discipline and formation. But I'm slowly recognizing that the desires of the body are not enemies of the spirit. Indeed, if we're willing to look at ourselves closely and honestly, we discover that our earthly desires our passions and our yearnings point us to God. If we are attentive, we can discover a spirituality of food. Our cravings for sleep, our impulse to waste time can point us to the profound wisdom of Sabbath rest. The desires of the flesh our inclination to obsess on our bodies can yield a prayer of thanksgiving for beauty and the human urge, the deep human desire to connect with others. Our impulse to draw and to paint and to sing and to dance and to play sculpture and to write poetry draws us to the creative source of the universe. Even the very finitude of our bodies 
the fact that I now wear bifocals, that my cholesterol is too high, that my hips ache if I run every day. In short, the fact that I am dying is an occasion to celebrate the sheer gift of life. Perhaps the best news in all of this is the simple fact that you, as a physical, thinking, feeling self, filled with yearnings and hopes and fears and limits, the good news is that you are blessed. Let's close with a prayer after which you are dismissed. As you leave this place, may you feel the beating of the divine heart, constant and steady, the pulse of Christ driving the life of the universe. May you know in your very bones that you are created in the image of God. May your hearts and your bodies be filled with desire a desire that draws you closer to the source of all desire. And may you leave with joy in the certainty that you are blessed. Amen.